You love technology, you love your privacy, and you cherish freedom and the Constitution. This is our culture and our way of life, and it's under attack from powers that be who want to know all that we do while we know very little of what they do. Restore the Fourth is an organization seeking to restore balance, and we need your help. Please head to RestoreTheFourth.com slash donate to help support our work. That's RestoreTheNumber4TH.com slash donate. Thank you for your support. Your government doesn't feel you can be trusted with a powerful weapon. Your thoughts. Encryption is ammunition, and in the battle to keep your thoughts your own, it's your right to have military grade. This is Privacy Patriots, episode number 8, recorded on November 18, 2017. The Patriots and its active members have received no legal instruments requiring us to turn over any information since our last podcast, dated June 17, 2017. My name is Fang. And I'm EJ. Welcome to the Privacy Patriots podcast, the official podcast of Restore the Fourth. So we've been away for a while. We were on a a bit of a mission in space. We were in cryogenic suspension uh, while we were traveling to Jupiter. And when we arrived there, we found a uh, long-lost colleague, EJ, and we uh, brought him safely back to Earth. And he thought... It would be a great idea to get in on uh, this thing that we've been doing while he's been away. What were you doing in Jupiter? Sightseeing. It's a, it's a new place. Hadn't been before. Figured why not. Yeah. A lot of gas. <laughs> yeah. So uh, since June, <laughs> it's kind of a quite, a quite a lapse, I've got to admit. But a lot of news has been going on. The, the big thing that's been developing ever since the summer is Section 702 reform. Um, this is kind of fairly complicated uh, stuff involving um, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act Amendments Act of 2008, which uh, authorized the intelligence community to target the communications of non-U.S. persons located outside the United States for foreign intelligence purposes. And uh, this is a provision that's set to, to sunset, as we say, at the end of this year. So Congress, rather than letting it die, as several lawmakers uh, on the Senate and the House side have been proposing legislation to, quote-unquote, reform Section 702 to one level or another, uh, that reform, uh, what we're calling reform, kind of varies to great degrees depending on the different bills and amendments that have been put forth. But what we're trying to, what they're trying to reform here is the fact that the FBI is using the database that the NSA has gathered on millions of Americans to, they're using it to investigate domestic crimes that are not related to national security. They don't have to do with terrorism at all. But um, so, you know, as much as we would like to see the, 702 just completely sunset. Of course, uh, the intelligence community is not going to uh, stand by idly. <laughs> but um, some attempts at reform were uh, on the House side, the USA Liberty Act, and on uh, the Senate side, uh, the USA Rights Act. But um, it, the differences between these bills and the uh, different amendments that have come up uh, have been 
pretty confusing to follow. So I was able to touch base with our resident policy wonk at Restore the Fourth. He also happens to be our national chair. Alex Marthews spoke to us a bit ago to kind of square out this, this whole Section 702 business. So Alex Marthews, national chair of Restore the Fourth, thanks for joining us to help us demystify this whole Section 702 controversy. My pleasure. So if you could first clarify for us what, what's meant by backdoor searching when it comes to the FBI making use of the database that the NSA has collected. Absolutely. So we all know that the NSA is gathering a lot of data. And the NSA's function is to gather it for foreign intelligence purposes, to give the U.S. government an idea of what is going on in other countries. So they've gathered a huge variety of data under a huge variety of programs, and it all feeds into this database of communications, um, of of people's electronic and voice communications. And this is a searchable database. What has happened over the last few years is that the FBI has been given more and more latitude to search within that database to find evidence for um, criminal investigations that it's conducting. Mm-hmm. And even when it doesn't have an open investigation to um, just probe around, see what the NSA has on somebody. Um, this is a problem because the FBI is a domestic law enforcement agency, and for domestic law enforcement, they're supposed to get a warrant for searches of the contents of people's communications. And this is a way that they can get around it really easily and conveniently for them. So they don't want to give it up, but it is presumptively unconstitutional that they're doing it. So this, to me, sounds like the ultimate realization of our fears when we originally heard, you know, X, Y, and Z. Oh, this is just going to be for terrorism and nothing else. I think we are far beyond it being just for terrorism now. The target of an NSA collection may themselves be involved with terrorism, but that by no means is required. Mm -hmm. Anybody who is of any potential interest from a foreign intelligence standpoint could be gathered upon as a target. And then if you're in communication with that target, then you can be gathered on yourself. Mm -hmm. So So it could be that there is a business person who is pursuing a contract who is a non-U.S. national. And then if you're speaking with that business person, then you could be collected on under this. And then your communications are opened up without a warrant to the FBI to search that database and see if they get a hit on you. Now that brings up something that I kind of wanted to get clear in my mind. When we're talking about what the FBI is searching through, the types of communications, even though they're looking for stuff that, for them is of domestic import uh, is this collection of communications in this database uh limited to communications between uh one american and one foreign national outside of the country so the communications may occur domestically and they can be collected in this database um it's dependent on when the whether the communication is between a U.S. person and a non-U.S. person. Mm-hmm. Um, they, if they can't tell that the communication is with a U.S. person, then they assume that it's with a non-U.S. person. So let's say, for example, that you're a Tor user, 
and Tor masks your IP address when you're browsing. Mm. And so they can't tell whether it is coming from within the U.S. or not. So they assume that that traffic is foreign traffic and comes under rules for foreigners. So it, it's been kind of hard to keep track of all of the iterations that have been happening in Congress uh, regarding Section 702 reform. I agree with that. <laughs> if we could go over that, and then I believe we have uh, some last-minute developments in that arena. So we had the USA Liberty Act was uh, the first attempt to reform 702 while not completely sunsetting it. And uh, in my understanding, there are a number of issues with that. Then we went on to see a new, more robust bill brought forth called the USA Rights Act. Is that correct? So that is correct. And let me sketch out briefly how these differ. Um, the House USA Liberty Act comes out of the Judiciary Committee, and it represents a compromise between the Republican chair and the minority um, ranking member of the Judiciary Committee, who are Rep. Bob Goodlatte and Rep. John Collins. And, let, and let's go over briefly what USA Liberty does about this FBI abuse. They say that there shall be a warrant for FBI access to the database records if it is in connection with a domestic criminal investigation. And I'm phrasing this very carefully because it's phrased in a way that the FBI can get around it. Mm. Let's imagine your FBI agent doing what is in effect a Google search. What the House USA Liberty Act is saying is you can enter in the search term, you can come up with a set of displayed results, but you're only going to need a warrant if you click on one of the results that you see. And further, you're only going to need a warrant if you click on the result that you see if that clicking is in connection to an open domestic criminal investigation. Mm. But the fact is that most of what the FBI has done since the Patriot Act passed in 2001 is not at the level of there being an open criminal investigation. It's an, at an earlier and broader stage called the assessment stage, where they're just sort of looking into things mm -hmm. and seeing whether there may be criminal activity in the future. This is what the FBI was doing um, at Standing Rock, for example. It's what they do at protests. It's what they do when they are circling around a situation with confidential informants and trying to see whether they can net a terrorist. Sounds like a classic fishing expedition, which in my mind yeah. is exactly what the Fourth Amendment is supposed to protect against. You're not wrong about that either. But So the assessment stage, think of it as the fishing expedition stage. And there is nothing in the House USA Liberty Act which would, which would require them to get a warrant for conducting that kind of fishing expedition. And that is the key problem with it in our minds. The USA Rights Act deals with this properly, and it imposes a warrant requirement for all queries of the database by the FBI relating to U.S. persons. Mm -hmm. No matter what the purpose is, whether it's assessment stage, whether it's investigation stage, whether it's foreign intelligence or domestic crime, doesn't matter. There has to be a warrant. And that seems to be the proper approach from our point of view. Difficulty is that the USA Rights Act is not getting the traction that we would like it to. Mm. And what seems to be happening instead in the Senate is that influential legislatures on the topic of surveillance have come together to issue a um, Senate companion to the USA Liberty Act, also called the USA Liberty Act. 
Mm-hmm. Now, the um, their version, the Senate version, does seem to deal with this FBI abuse problem. And is this what just was released? It, last night, mm-hmm. yes. So, so it dropped Friday evening. It's very recent. We haven't had time to fully review it. Mm. Um, what is clear about it is that its warrant language is stronger, and it still would not deal with the problem of tour users that we talked about, mm-hmm. where the FBI can't immediately tell that the traffic is of a U.S. person, and so they assume that it's of a non-U.S. person. Under those circumstances, it seems that the Senate USA Liberty Act still would not impose a warrant for the searches of, of tour users' information. Now, isn't it a fair inference that the USA Rights Act would pretty much preclude an FBI agent from going into the database at all until they had a warrant? Yes, that's right. And that's entirely proper, because the only reason why the NSA was ever allowed to gather this stuff is because they were saying this is for foreign intelligence purposes, and therefore it does not trigger the Fourth Amendment protections that that usually would be required for accessing the contents of U.S. persons' communications. That's the only reason they were allowed to do it mm. in the first The FBI can't then break that implicit agreement and then be, be searching that database at will. My personal preference would be for that database to be walled off from the FBI and then greatly slimmed down or deleted because it's already containing far too much information. But at the moment, thanks to some loosening of regulations that happened in 2016, the FBI really has very few limits on what it can do in trawling through that database. So this is a key opportunity for people who care about surveillance and the intrusion of the state in their communications. This legislation only comes up for renewal every five years. And last time it came up, Edward Snowden hadn't even come along. There is so much more that we know now about what the government is doing. And that ought to be reflected in limitations that are placed by Congress on what is done with this data. It would be a terrible outcome if at the end of this year, Congress just decided to do nothing and then we let them get away with it. Because by default, Congress is going to do what the intelligence community wants it to do unless we pressure it the other way. All right, Alex Matthews, National Chair of Restore the Fort, thanks for breaking down Section 702 for us. So, you know, as I had feared even before the Snowden revelations, it sounds like, uh, you know, we really uh, cut off our nose to spite our face after 9-11, we'll say. Uh, you know, once upon a time, I in my lifetime, I remember when there were specific separations of, of powers between the dif- different uh, investigatory agencies, and now they're just nicely intermingled and digging into each other's stuff. It's almost something that would um, make the Stasi blush if they had seen it decades ago. Oh, yeah. If they had known that in the future you could have access to this amount of data and this ability to search it so easily, they would have just gotten nuts. This is their wet dream. (laughs) But basically, it sounds like the FBI is just having a full run just digging through and and looking at whatever they want to look at, uh, whether they have an investigation or not, whether it has to do with national security or not. And I'm urging 
folks to contact their reps, especially their senators. And right now, our stance still is we support the USA Rights Act above all else because there's all these, still all these workarounds in the various um, amendments and, and the other bills. So uh, this just, it sounds like they would flat out not be able to look at this thing until the, a judge said so if the USA Rights Act were to come to be. At least some roadblock in the path of uh, the FBI in these searches that they do often before there's an official criminal investigation, which is a scary prospect, that they're just sort of out there fishing around looking for some crime that has occurred or not occurred yet. So um, a more, I guess, domestic or, or at least localized context, um, these mystery metal towers have been popping up in New York City, uh, which is kind of an interesting development. Um, they've been put up at local tunnels and bridges, and uh, there's very little known about what they are. And, you know, uh, we have a link to the story on the website. You can look at these things. I, I don't know how to describe them. They kind of look maybe like a um, some sort of Zippo lighter. Or... Yeah, or like one of those mesh trash cans that's sort of been flattened. Yeah, yeah. Um, Maybe, yeah, like a fancy trash can you'd get at Bed Bath & Beyond or something. I don't know. But um, uh, it sounds like at least the public at large has no idea what they're for, what they're going to do. Um, but uh, we do know that the uh, the MTA, the, the Metro uh, Transportation Authority in New York City, is spending $100 million on these towers. Um, and so it's fair to say they're not just, um, you know, uh, They're not decorations. Postmodern decorations. <laughs> no. And uh, according at least to one of the things I read, they seem to be going in places where there's a fiber connection, which would indicate some amount of data transfer or the design in the future for some sort of real-time communication to some other locale. But uh, what's wild to me is that even some of the MTA board members, uh, the, the the folks in ch- basically are in charge of the MTA, say they don't fully know enough about what the towers do. Um, uh, New York City Transportation Commissioner Polly Trottenberg was quoted as saying, uh, a lot of the board members felt that they don't have all the details they would have wanted, myself included. So I, I'm guessing they know a little bit more than the public, but... They're still being left in the dark. Yeah. Somebody probably came in and said, security, privacy, it's terrorism, we have to fight them. And The usual. Oh, yeah. Um, Won't somebody think of the children? <laughs> MTA Chairman Joe Loda said, the base of these new pieces that are going up include whatever fiber optics, as you noted, uh, are necessary for those homeland security items, but... He wouldn't elaborate on what the Homeland Security items are. And we already know that the NYPD has uh, shot detector across the city, and they have their um, Iron Curtain surveillance system. So what next level thing is this? And then there's the um, what is it, NY Link that has reportedly some sort of level of facial recognition ability potentially. Yeah. So what, what do you think these towers are? I mean, it's... Pr- my guess is it may be radiation detectors of some sort. Yeah, something like that, probably including some sort of audio component, like detecting uh, just ambient level of noises. So if there's like a gunshot to sort of expand that capacity. But 
I mean, it doesn't look like there's any sort of camera included, which seems a little odd if you're putting them on tunnels. Maybe you would want, like, a camera to do license plate reading at a tunnel entrance or exit. Like, Yeah. So Unless, unless you know, I, I don't know for sure, but I think it might be a fair assumption that there are plenty of cameras already in place yeah. at those bridges oh, and tunnels. Um, um, but, yeah, but, I wonder... Like, Lodo was actually asked about point blank about facial recognition, and he said, "I, I cannot comment." And whether or not he knows is also <laughs> a question. Yeah, that, uh, but, but how do our officials make decisions, and how does the public, you know, in a free society, how do how do how do we feel about um, you know all of these technologies being deployed on a need to know basis? And there's just there's Transparency is definitely out of style in the 21st century. We've seen a couple times New York City sort of being used as a testbed for new technologies and surveillance platforms. So I imagine in a couple of years we could see these weird modern art trash cans cropping up <laughs> in other cities. Um, maybe by then we'll know what they are so we can better uh, make an informed decision on them. Yeah. Maybe we won't. Maybe maybe some uh, some hackers or freakers uh, with some RF equipment could potentially figure out what these are, are for. Yeah. So uh, another item on the news docket, uh, the 10th Amendment Center, uh, which is another organization like Restore the Fourth, but the 10th Amendment is, in brief, uh, focuses more on states' rights. But one of, the, one of the activists, the communication director from 10th Amendment Center, was recently sued by his local government after he requested documents on surveillance tech from the municipality. Uh, Mike Mahari filed an open records request with the city of Lexington, Kentucky, to find out what's going on with surveillance in the city, what kind of technology are they deploying, stingrays, cameras, license plate readers, etc. So the city released some information, but they redacted a ton of it. Surprise. That black marker is a favorite of FOIA re- request fulfillment people the nationwide. <laughs> Um, but Mike appealed this, and the state attorney general sided with him and told the city to give him the full documents. And then the city turned around and sued Mike over it, asking a court to overturn the attorney general and demanding that Mike pay all the legal fees. Michael said, quote, Edward Snowden revealed the extent of federal surveillance, but it's not just the NSA spying on Americans. In fact, the foundation of the surveillance state is at the local level. The feds fund all kinds of surveillance technologies, local police operate them, and then the data gets dumped into massive federal databases. One of the most effective ways to stop warrantless dragnet surveillance is to start in your own neighborhood, unquote. And you know that touches on what some of the things we'll get into with our uh, guests today in the interview later is some successful attempts to act locally to bring oversight to law enforcement surveillance tech. So the ACLU of Kentucky is re- representing this guy, so that's good. I'm not entirely familiar with the case, but it seems sort of just a blatant pushback against something that they perceive as a slight against their power. Yeah, and especially the the countersuit and then the demands to pay legal fees just seems like just flat-out retribution. Playground bully tactics. So uh, speaking of the ACLU, uh, they joined a civil rights lawsuit concerning the surveillance and wrongful arrest of a Chinese-American physics professor, uh, tying right into our prior discussion of, of 702 or, or at least the initial 
NSA uh, communication collection that's at the heart of that. Two years ago, the FBI raided the home of uh, Zhao Jingji, a uh, Chinese-American physics professor at Temple University. So they alleged that they had been that he had been sharing information with colleagues in China about a device only known as quote a pocket heater unquote. Here's another. Th- this is the show of of mysterious, purposeless devices today. So uh, I don't know. Maybe we'll be seeing pocket heaters uh, at all the retail outlets in time for Christmas. Whatever it is, <laughs> I'm pretty sure there's some at the corner store. <laughs> <laughs> but whatever this pot, quote unquote pocket heater is, I'm, I'm guessing that's a code name. Uh, he had, uh, I guess, he was working on this scene. He had an agreement to keep the designs of which secret. So the government used some of its most powerful spying tools to listen to his phone calls and scan his emails. Some of which was authorized by uh, FISA, but others were warrantless, conducted under Section 702. So Zai's international communications ended up having nothing to do with the secret device and was actually just routine academic collaboration. So the charges were dropped. So I, I'm guessing he was really emailing them about Hot Pockets he was having for uh, lunch? or Yeah, or <laughs> they were having some heat dissipation issues with something and somebody jokingly called it a pocket heater one time and <laughs> the inside joke stuck. Is that a pocket heater in your pants or are you happy to see me? Uh <laughs> But, uh, you know, even though the charges were dropped, the ACLU is is still seeking a complaint uh, regarding the fact that warrantless unconstitutional surveillance was performed on the professor. And they're claiming that this is, you know, one case in many where um, Chinese Americans have been uh, subject to bias and then falsely accused of one thing or another uh, based on this type of surveillance. At that level of academia, research between you know somebody in Beijing and somebody at Temple University isn't entirely uncommon. And while the university in China has much stronger government ties, this is normal in the academic world for these two colleagues to be emailing about related research or a project that they're working on together and isn't by any means a sign of some wrongdoing or malfeasance on either part. And, you know, it's sort of just a witch hunt that, oh, they're over there, you know, there's Chinese government involvement. Clearly something's going on. We better look into it. But, I mean, most most people who end up being the subjects of this kind of NSA surveillance, you know, never find out. Uh, uh, this guy obviously found out in the most dramatic way that yes. – so um, – this is not surprising. The U.S. Homeland Security wants facial recognition to identify people in moving cars. They posted a public notice calling on tech companies to submit proposals for this system. They want something that will allow Homeland Security to maintain a database of everyone who leaves and enters the U.S. at border crossings that would uh, now include photos taken by spying robot cameras at every border crossing. But they want this facial recognition program to work without anyone having to exit their vehicle, even if the travelers are wearing things like sunglasses and hats and without the cars having to stop. So I don't know, you know, I, I've, I've done a, bu- a bit of research into, um, uh, you know, optical recognition algorithms. Uh, I think that's a pretty tall order to, uh, you know, 
even even work when they're wearing the the nose the, the glasses nose and mustache disguise kit. I think that's kind of tough to pull off. Yeah, there was a research paper um, unveiled recently, and I forget exactly who and where, but they were able to uh, manipulate an image. Um, maybe just by adding a couple pixels or changing colors slightly. And so a machine learning algorithm, which had been trained to detect, I believe it was, let's, let's say cats for the purpose of this, <laughs> uh, or guns. Um, I believe it was guns, obviously. Uh, they were able to trick it into thinking a benign picture of skis was a gun by the addition of a couple pixels or the manipulation thereof. So... The false positive rate here is a scary potential. Yeah, I mean, you know, if I mean, if the the newly launched Massachusetts Turnpike system can't even one hundred percent get license plates correct, but you're gonna, you're going to get people's faces correctly through uh, the glare of windshields while moving. I mean, right, and somebody's wearing branded sunglasses like yeah. that raises a whole new level of complications you have to deal with. Yeah, which is just... but. Somehow along the way, we we forgot to stop and say, do we really do they really need all this data? Do they really need to have a, a composite of everyone's face put into a da- database and for further retrieval? Like uh, it's really been a, in almost twenty years that this type of surveillance has uh, been uh, not so effective in preventing anything. So. And it wouldn't just be their face, it would be their face, a timestamp, what car they were in, what position in the seat they were in, you know, are they the driver, passenger seat, front, rear, et cetera, et cetera. How fast they were going would, by necessity, be included. Yeah. So this Friday or Thursday late in the day, there was a discovery made by a gentleman at UpGuard, um, which is a security company. And unfortunately, I didn't uh, write down the guy's name. But in what's became a routine search of Amazon S3 buckets, um, looking for unsecured ones, ones that have been misconfigurations that anybody with an Amazon Web Service account can look at them, he stumbled upon an uh, S3 bucket with terabytes and terabytes of data that has been collected on behalf of the U.S. military, um, specifically PACOM and another operating division that I forget, um, that contains about 1.8 billion social media posts going back about eight years. Mm-hmm. And it's from all over the world, but includes a vast number of Americans. And, you know, this is the military. This isn't a security branch. This isn't the NSA. This isn't the FBI. This is the U.S. military. Huh collecting this data for well we don't know when they started but they have eight years worth of posts apparently yeah you know and that that kind of stuff gets tricky in my mind because uh you know one thing i always warn people about social media uh, is that you are broadcasting like that by you know not in every single use case and, you know, I know in theory you can drill down your posts in, in terms of who you want to see them, but uh, the mechanisms are not, you know, any kind of uh, rigid privacy. Uh, so, like, I always just warn people to just consider, unless you're, you know, writing a direct message, you know, assume that 
what you're saying, you may as well be saying on an open mic at a broadcast radio station. So this gets into some of the legal principles uh, that some of the new surveillance tech is justified, which justified with, which is uh, extra sensory versus extra efficient surveillance tech. So, for instance, the the, the common case or example is, uh, let's say, a police officer was using um, a infrared imager to look inside of a house. Um, that's obviously a Fourth Amendment uh, issue because they're doing something they naturally couldn't do on their own. But a lot of the justification for kind of this bulk collection stuff, whether it be license plate readers or this new kind of fetish with wanting to collect every social media post possible and analyze it, um, is that the individual action being done, it's out there to be seen and uh, a person, you know, an officer or whoever could could do this manually. So therefore, they're just doing the same thing that they are able to do anyway, but just doing it extra efficiently. But uh, what's your thought? I I feel that in the 21st century, we have to start thinking about some level of protection or restriction uh, where the level of quote-unquote efficiency just reaches a level that we're not comfortable with. I think that's, even though it's not necessarily constitutional, I think it's a valid in my opinion, it's a valid uh, thing we should tackle. I would agree, and I think that point sort of passed. You know, uh, these spaces like Facebook sort of presents itself as a communication platform with a sometimes not so subtle message that we are a safe space for you to communicate with your friends. Mm. Well, if you're broadcasting those communications to the world, and as we've seen in the Snowden revelations and various other documents you are willingly or knowingly providing that information to law enforcement, you're clearly not providing a safe space for everyone. Yeah. There are people who are not comfortable with every word they say being funneled straight to law enforcement. And I don't think anybody should be because you know, everything you say can and will be used against you. Yeah. So to play devil's advocate, they'll say, you know, we're just doing... 21st century equivalent of old-fashioned detective work. For what crime? Yeah, good point. Do you have a crime that's been committed? Yeah. Okay, do you have a warrant for that crime? That's what we would call a dragnet. You've got a good point. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But to further your point, I've gotten kind of off track with my examples. I'm talking about uh, examples with local law enforcement and things like that. This was the military. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. so obviously they're what? What do we think they they were trying to do here? They're trying well, to the it was um, the Pacific, which is like Southeast Asia, the Pacific region, etc. But one of the other groups was the Middle East, where there were active military engagements going on. Which I can understand why they were doing that. You know, collect as much information, see if you can find something out. But just the vast right, and it's not even it. From the information that was presented, it doesn't look like it was targeted in a way that is relevant to some current conflict. You know, mm-hmm. it's just a dragnet across entire regions or uh, 
honestly, the entire globe by the military looking for something conducted by a uh, you know third-party contractor that was listed at least in one of the documents um, I saw as Vendor X LLC, which is shady at best. <laughs> <laughs> Just like, you could Ac- come up with a better name? Acme Incorporated. Right. Like, <laughs> Vendor X. <laughs> come on. So what's up next? Uh, next, uh, in a bit of good news, uh, there is a ruling by the New York State Supreme Court in the case of the people of New York versus, uh, I believe it's Shaquan Gordon, where he had been arrested um, for some charges uh, through the use of a stingray. And the police had gone and gotten a uh, pen register tap and tape warrant Uh which in the past has covered listening to somebody's landline and recording the messages and then using that information to act on i always like to qualify for new listeners uh, on the off chance but stingray is basically a cell phone interceptor it essentially acts as a cell phone tower and because it's probably closer to you than another cell phone tower it's the stronger signal so your phone connects to it and then the cops can see everything that you are sending through that cell phone tower. Yeah. So the NYPD used this pen register tap and tape warrant to take their stingray out and drive around and find out where this person was. And of course, inadvertently collect all sorts of other data, which I'm sure they properly disposed of (laughs) into some database, which they will search later. Uh, But the Supreme court, of New York State ruled that this just wasn't okay. You can't use a warrant designed specifically for a landline to listen in and tape that landline for this kind of warrant um, dragnet surveillance. So they said going forth, if the NYPD wants to do this, they have to get a warrant that specifically states that they are using a cell site simulator or stingray or something like that, which... It's a step in the right direction. Sounds like an important precedent. Yeah. Yeah. Which, you know, it's New York State, it's the NYPD. This could be a model for something going forward. Yeah. Uh, yeah. A lot of, you know, a lot of uh, trends, uh, for better or worse, kind of trickle down from New York or California as kind of the big uh, test beds of legislation or judicial opinion or the nypd is the most militarized and surveillance uh excited you know police department yeah i i don't know if my both of my uncles were nypd but passed well before this age i just can't imagine what they would think of of the nypd in its current form yeah it's i don't know if any other uh police departments have uh foreign intelligence yeah. <laughs> I seem to remember, and I could be misquoting, but that there was some sort of legal uh, limbo, you know, twisting and contorting was done to say that, well, New York is so international uh-huh. that really we can let the CIA, like, operate a little bit in New York. Uh-huh. And, you know, they're so international that foreign surveillance, we can do a little bit of that in New York because there's so many foreigners coming in and out because of the airports and the UN and stuff. And it's just like, no, it's not how this is supposed to work. <laughs> and of course it's within a hundred miles of a border, which is a whole nother category. Oh, yes. Yeah. We've talked about that. The quote unquote unconstitutional zone. Yeah. 
or something. Yeah, uh, all of Florida. <laughs> I think all of Maine. Yeah. And then the FCC, uh, coming up in December, it looks like they're going to push for a vote on net neutrality. And in the lead-up to that, they've been making some decisions that aren't directly related to that, but pertain to it in various ways. Mm-hmm. For example, they in a very partisan move uh, that was divided on the obvious lines there, uh, moved to further deregulate media companies, allowing even larger media companies to buy other large media companies, further consolidating media corporations into less and less. Yeah, and I can uh, imagine these mega mergers are going to be nothing but great for consumer privacy. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Also just... The various viewpoints you'll forward slash s. <laughs> like uh, I think it was Sinclair wanted to buy somebody else, and under the previous rules they couldn't. But now it looks like they can, and this is going to be like some billions and billions of dollar merger. Yeah, uh, and then there were other moves to prevent states or local municipalities from creating their own internet infrastructure, which. Uh, my parents live in an area that's fairly rural, and the best internet option there is just—it uh, is crap on a good day. <laughs> <laughs> and when it rains hard, it goes out uh-huh. um, because it's you know it's at the very end of their this company's reach, and they just don't care really. Yeah. Um. So in that particular area, uh, there is a proposal for that town and a couple of the neighboring towns. They're pooling money to build their own internet infrastructure to provide uh, what they're calling high speed, but I think in, you know, 2017 we could just say is... Medium. Medium. Reasonable (laughs) minimum speeds available. I think it's something like 10 megabits or something. Yeah. But are are they getting the typical pushback for uh, an attempted municipal deployment like that? Remains to be seen. There was... I mean, the... The first hurdle was the various towns had to agree to work together, which, (laughs) you know, um, but this is in Massachusetts, so there is a little bit more friendly atmosphere towards that. So hopefully something will come of that. And another town uh, about two hours away, Greenfield, Massachusetts, had done a uh, municipal wireless network. Um, I don't know what the status of it is. Uh, I know the rollout was a bit shaky. Mm. So on the software side of things, uh, you know, a, a big favorite with us is uh, the Signal app from Open Whisper Systems. Uh, they released uh, what we're calling the standalone desktop version. They had, uh, it, you know, initially you could only use their end-to-end encryption chat messaging on a smartphone. Uh, shortly after that, they... They added a, a means to do that on your desktop, but you had to run it as a plugin in your Chrome web browser. For, I don't know if you've used it, but in I in used a, it. yeah, I mean, in effect, it, it opened up in its own window, and as far as you knew, it was it it operated like a, its own application. But it was a Chrome app, which they call them, yeah, just uh, like basically an isolated tab in Chrome that runs as its own application and looks like its own application, but is basically Chrome under the hood. Now, why do you think they did that initially? Is that just... Ease of development, probably. So they could use kind of Google libraries that were already 
yeah, available? Yeah, uh, it provides a platform to fairly easily develop um, this application. Uh, I, I should say I've done a little bit of tinkering with it at a previous job. We were looking into using Chrome apps to do some things. Um, mm-hmm. Did some prototyping, but I never really developed. But it is a fairly easy way to get a fairly seamless cross-platform product up and running. You know, because Chrome, any environment Chrome will run in, this app will run in. Mm-hmm. But this new standalone version is just a traditional, uh, you know, it's a binary for each operating system like you normally download yeah. on your desktop, whether it be an EXE for Windows, a DMG for Mac, or... Uh, Whatever flavor you choose for Linux. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, I know I don't know about you, but when it was when the only option for desktop use of Signal was the Chrome app, I had a lot of friends and colleagues who were just kind of like uh, I don't know anti Google or wary of Google enough that they. Uh, <laughs> either didn't run Chrome or didn't like using a lot of Google services or products if they didn't have to, and they kind of eschewed running Signal on the desktop via that Chrome app. Do you think there were real concerns running it when it was through Chrome? I think there were legitimate fears. Uh, I mean, Google is an all-reaching monopoly in Mm -hmm. some ways. Um, I think there were some... I, I'm sure many people looked into it, and Google wasn't doing anything with it. But you know, if I mean, they wouldn't be able to, no, presumably, because the the protocol is open source. It's been audited, right? And end to end encryption is end to end encryption, whether you're running as a Chrome app or a stand- standalone. I think one of the fears might have been that Google could collect some telemetry data. You, know, uh, you are running the Signal app. You are using it on this device. Yeah. You are using Google services here. I know you use Google services on these other devices. Yeah. So also, also uh, well, everybody has yeah. their own kind of uh, spectrum place on the spectrum of how private they want to be and uh, what companies you trust yeah. more than others. Yeah. Which yeah sort of well, depends on the day. Do you feel better running the standalone? I feel better. Um, yeah. I feel better about it. Just, just cause. Just cause. Yeah. There's Sometimes that, it's just about just cause. Yeah. There's that little sort of like thing there that's removed. Also. Yeah. It it looks like they're putting a lot more effort into it. I know since I've installed it on uh, one of my machines, I've received a number of updates uh, for it. Like, yeah. I'll get a message and I'll like go to read it and I'll be like, "Hey, there's an update." I'm like, well. I wanted to read this message, but I guess I have to update this. <laughs> um, Do you think it runs better? Uh, maybe. I've I feel been doing like a, a little lot of stuff on my computer, so yeah. like I haven't noticed uh, a thing. Yeah. But I think, in some ways, it's more polished and smoother. Um, I did want to warn folks that uh, if you do the export of your messages from the Chrome app, it has to go into an in- intermediary. Uh, format in a, in a folder on your computer, which you then import into the standalone. But that, in my understanding, that it, it, intermediary uh, backup file, those files are just plain text JSON files. So if you're like me, you want to be a little extra paranoid. I did the export to uh, a TrueCrypt or Veracrypt uh, volume, 
and then did the import from that, and then then yeah. chucked it. <laughs> Important. No, when you do the encrypt, make sure that signal is like the app is closed. Also, if it throws an error, look at the debug log. Yeah. I had to look at it like four times. Uh, There's a conversation with a friend who had changed his phone number a couple times as he moved around, but one of the previous saved conversations there was some something was malformed in the json so by deleting that conversation it could then import it okay i ran into that and that was my understanding was that some people were saying oh if you're getting this error it's some message or another that uh in your uh history that's causing it but i didn't know how to identify which one it was there's Uh, a debug log and it they're like submit a like bug report and you click that and it generates this thing and then you can look at it and sort of look through yeah and it did a fairly good job of being like there was an error in message you know yeah nine thousand well whatever it was i just uh i didn't have time to really dig into it uh, i got the you know i tried to do the export like a day after it was released i got the error so i just hung tight about a week uh ran the 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 update and whatever the issue was that was affecting me, uh, it looks like they just resolved it in the export import process. So for the small size of their team, they've been fairly responsive to issues as far as I've seen. It's pretty, it's pretty amazing when you think about it. I think they have 10 people. I think it's something like that. Yeah. yeah, It's, Definitely only, only double digit. I know yeah, that. And only a subset of those are working on the desktop because yeah. there's, you know, the yeah. native Android, the native iOS, and then there's the protocol. So. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, you know, they're doing Yemen's Ye- Ye- work in spinning this up and providing it to the whole world. Um, and, you know, and, and the fact that it is a nonprofit that's just kind of devoted to this. And if you go on their website, and look at you know open whisper systems and look at their uh, either their about page or their like jobs page uh it's pretty funny because they talk about like here are all the perks of working here like you know we take turns like making dinner like at each other's houses or you know like you know the place where you would normally see on a startup startups website about Oh, oh, we have like a gym on site or we have this on site beer like, on thursday yeah yeah, yeah. it's like you know, it's much more Spartan if you're working at Open Whisper Systems, but I guess you can really sleep well at night and know that you're uh, doing something uh, good for the world. So, uh, not doing something so good for the world, uh, yeah. OnePlus, which is actually the, the the smartphone brand of choice for you and I, uh, they were they were caught. What were they caught exactly doing? What? It was a backdoor of sorts. Yeah, and this wasn't the first one. Um, but this time, it looks like, I believe it was Qualcomm, makes an app for handset manufacturers to use to get a bunch of data logging when they're developing these phones. Uh, and this app was left on the phone. Um, and it was... Uh, so, yeah, they it was left as... Uh, a part of Oxygen OS. Yeah, that's the version of Android that runs on these phones by default. Semi-custom ROM for yeah. the OnePlus. Yeah, this uh, data logging app was left on the Oxygen build for uh, a number of models of the OnePlus, yeah. and there is a potential vulnerability where somebody could gain root access to your phone. Uh-huh. Um, 
So was this app at all sending any data back to the home base at all? I don't know if it was, but it definitely could be used to get data. Okay. Um, all sorts of data um, about the state of various uh, like elements of your phone. But there was also this root access ability where you could use this app in some way to root your phone. Um, now, this vulnerability wasn't... Uh, part and parcel of the hardware in any way. It, it, it's baked into the Oxygen OS. Right. It's a process that runs. So if you're like me where I, you know, I have a OnePlus, but I've replaced it with an alternate ROM, Lineage OS. So this doesn't really apply to that. Uh, no, it doesn't appear to. And okay. it's fairly easy to see if it applies. You basically go to your settings, your apps, the, you enable like view systems apps, and then you look for this one. It was something engineering i forget but it's yeah easy enough to look up uh, there was a number of stories about this whole thing going going back to the just cuz idea of things do you find some people are surprised when they find out you run on one plus phone uh a Chi- because it's a chinese company a little bit um as if you know every phone didn't come out of a chinese production line yeah that's or true. every part in a phone didn't come out of a chinese <laughs> production line before it went to a different factory to be assembled yeah. um I also run into a lot of people being like, oh, what phone do you have? I'm like, the OnePlus. No, the OnePlus, like, what? Like, who makes that? I'm like, oh, OnePlus makes that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, there is sometimes this, like, wait, they're a Chinese company? And it's like, yes, they're a Chinese company. But in terms of threat vectors or, like, you know, your threat awareness, I don't think... They're not Lenovo. They're not Lenovo. <laughs> you know, and it... it most chips in everything comes out of you know these huge factories in China, and yeah. that's just the world we live in. I know for me, the bottom line was uh, having the most security possible on a self on a smartphone. Kind of predicated <laughs> on being um, on how configurable, how customizable, yeah. and how much control I could have over the hardware and software of that device. And I felt the OnePlus offerings really allowed that. So, you know, I'm, a, I'm able to lock things down to the extent that I want, and that's what's important to me. And it's sold directly from them to you without going through Verizon, who, you know, locks down a bootloader, loads their own apps on, which you then have to go root the phone to even remove some of these apps. Yeah. Were you an old fuddy-duddy like I was where I wouldn't – I wouldn't uh, like I, I didn't even get a smartphone until I could buy buy one outright. Like could you imagine if you had to buy – you know, for years and years the cell phone industry in the U.S. was analogous to this. Can you imagine if you had to buy your laptop from Time Warner Cable? I would cry and <laughs> go somewhere else. Ah. Uh. By which I mean, please, Spectrum, let me have internet when I get home. <laughs> and it really rubs me the wrong way. You know, like, I, I consider myself one of the last generation of freakers. And, uh, you, you know, I lived through, you know, I was young, but I lived through the um, the, the monopoly breakup of the baby of Ma Bell. Yeah. And, you know, one of the big controversies over that era was that, they wouldn't allow other people to manufacture and sell phones that could be plugged into the regular phone system. So then once the cell era came and we all of a sudden we had these 
uh, you know, this this business model where you could only get your phone from the carrier. I'm like, huh, this is deja vu. My first phone was through Verizon, and it was uh, that was my first smartphone. Uh, yeah. And ever since then, I've bought it outright. And, yeah. You know, it, it gives you that ability to go to a different carrier if, for whatever reason, you want it. Like, yeah. I think uh, the first carrier I uh, what did I do? I had to do something with my account online because reasons and. Um, of course, you know, I set up a reasonably secure password, which I had promptly forgotten. So I sent, you know, I forgot my password, sent it to me, and there was my password in the clear. <laughs> so I paid my bill and switched to a new provider. Move along. Nothing to see here. Uh, yeah. All right. So obviously when you're uh, in cryogenic suspension uh, for a number of months, you got a lot of news to catch up with. So yeah, big docket there. But you know what it's time for now? Patriots and Pariahs. Yes, uh, every episode, as uh, we always do, we, we highlight uh, one person who has uh, done something notable to uh, in the fight to protect our privacy and uh, somebody who has not been so good in that regard. So this episode, our Patriot is Alex Wubbles, and uh, this was apparently all the rage while we were away. That this She's a nurse at the University Hospital in Salt Lake City, Utah. Did you follow this? Uh, yeah, coming back, I had read up a little bit on this. I saw some headlines. And... Yeah, so police uh, had pursued a suspect in a car chase out in Utah. Uh, that, In my understanding, the chase, and then this gets important, the chase broke department protocol. And the chase resulted in the suspect's vehicle colliding with a semi. Uh, it exploded. The suspect died. Uh, the driver of the semi was badly injured and hospitalized in a coma. So uh, police on scene at the hospital at that point, for whatever reason, demanded to draw blood from the unconscious victim. Uh, so, you know, it's still kind of squirrely, like, what that was about. Were My... they unaware that this was not the person they were chasing? No, I, I know they knew. Right. I my I'm, I can only think is maybe they were looking for something to misconstrue uh, that their initiation of the chase was, you know... Something un- to cover their asses. Yeah. Uh, you know... Jingle the keys over here. Look at this. You know, this guy was had this in his system, and he was driving a truck. So, I don't know. I don't know how they expected to construe something. But at the end of the day, uh, you can't really under Fourth Amendment. You can't really be drawing blood from somebody who's unconscious. Right. And uh, on top of that, according to uh, University Hospital uh, protocol. That's not allowed. So as per that, um, and after getting confirmation of this from supervisors, uh, Nurse Wubbles refused to allow the blood draw uh, without the patient consent. You know, Obviously, uh, there's no way that you could consent uh, when I drew uh, blood from you uh, when you were in cryogenic suspension on the way back from oh, Jupiter. Wasn't uh, even where that happened. Yeah. But luckily, it wasn't caught there on cameras inside <laughs> the spaceship, so I'm in the clear. But... Um, so basically Nurse Wobbles like wouldn't acquiesce to these demands of, uh, the request for the drug, bl- the, the blood draw off of this semi driver. So detective Jeff Payne, uh, ended up detaining the nurse 
basically cuffing her and dragging her away into a squad car while she's screaming. And um, we ended up getting to see the whole incident because it was caught on a police body camera and, and released publicly. Uh, since then, the detective has been dismissed from the department. But um, more recently, a new development in this is that Nurse Wubbles has been give, given a $500,000 settlement, some of which she plans to use to help people get body camera footage at no cost uh, for incidents involving themselves. A noble cause? Yeah. I think we can all get behind that. Like, and I know from working... Uh, on body camera policy here in upstate New York, you know, uh, the, the, the approach to how and who can obtain relevant footage from these cameras is, is uh, not laid out or unified in any way. And it's kind of uh, a case by case municipal policy thing. So it can be kind of a legal challenge when you want to get hold of a, a footage that might be relevant to you and a case involving you. But, uh, Basically, this is a case of somebody that, uh, I mean, in effect, they they put themselves up as a roadblock to protect the constitutional rights of someone. But uh, on the flip side of things, we have Rod Rosenstein as our pariah this week. So uh, uh, he he's the new deputy attorney general under Trump, and uh, he's the latest in a whole cast of characters to come out and demand uh, uh you, you know some sort of backdoor or exception or whoa, whoa you mean responsible encryption yeah that's the, the that's the term he dropped yeah this time around is that uh there can be secure but responsible encryption you know um he's claiming you know, that or demanding that tech companies provide effective, secure encryption that allows access with judicial authorization. So, but anyone that understands the basics, the basic mathematical concepts of end-to-end -end encryption knows that those two things do not coexist. Yeah, uh, two plus two equals five. Yeah. So, but, you know, my new analogy lately is a politician came out and said, Guns should be effective and freely available, but the manufacturers of, of firearms must ensure that we have some way to remotely deactivate them if they're being used in a firefight with police. It's a responsible thing to do. Responsible. <laughs> make it ha just make it happen. <laughs> yeah. Seems reasonable until you spend yeah. more than a moment thinking about it and it's like, wait, yeah. you know. So he claimed that... Um, that this wasn't a backdoor, and, and I, I feel like uh, one after another, we've seen some uh, some folks on the on the judicial and, and law enforcement side of things always claiming that uh, key escrow and other types of um, of maneuvers are, are not backdoors. Um, and is that something you're familiar with, key escrow? Yeah, a bit. Yeah, I mean, I vaguely remember the whole. Um chip thing under clinton oh was, yeah the clipper chip clipper is an chip. example of yeah, that i was a bit younger at the time uh, yeah but i remember hearing about it here and there and you know of course reading about it and it's just like everything that is old is new again yeah but what what is the basics of key escrow that that in some way and they've proposed a number of mechanisms whether and it's not at the manufacturer level or it's stored in a 
chip like the Clipper chip, but in some way that this encryption includes a third key, if it's between, like, say, me and you, there's a third key that signs this communication that then they can get a warrant and wave it around and then get access to this third key, which they could then use to decrypt this. And I'm simplifying. But the third key, until that warrant comes, the third key has to be sitting somewhere off-site? Or, I mean, I've seen, I'm sure there's a proposal that it sits in, you know, allegedly encrypted memory on the device and then you get a warrant and you go and you get a technician and you say, all right, we have this piece of paper that says we can get that, please decrypt this device. And that's great, but this is a world where the the TSA held up the master keys to the TSA approved (laughs) uh, locks for luggage on Instagram and suddenly anybody who had some degree of minor technical knowledge could make fake copies of these and you could basically blow this picture up to get the right size, you know, trace it on some tracing paper, put it down, cut it out of metal, take it down to your local hardware store and one of these vending machine key things will print you out a copy. So or you can perf- 3D print them. Like, a perfect example of uh, a case where the folks who are supposed to be trusted with this third key uh, don't know what they're doing yeah. and left thing left the the store open. Right, and you know, this information would, this third key is prized, you know, corporate information that would, by necessity, need to be kept safe and protected at the highest and most rigorous levels, like, say, your social security number and financial records. Oops. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Equifax. <laughs> but funny that you mentioned you know, that you related this to the physical lock because, uh, you know, the the Electronic Frontier Foundation came out with a bit of a retort to uh, uh, the attorney, the deputy attorney general. Uh, and one of the things they pointed out when he said he claimed that society has never had a system where evidence of criminal wrongdoing was totally impervious to detection, but that that's what tech companies were creating now. But they pointed out that, well, for one, we've always been able to talk in person and you know that's always going to be between the, the two people, but uh, they noted a physical lock that was developed in 1770 and it remained unpickable until 1851. So during that period, anybody using that lock was theoretically impervious from from any kind of uh, government. Uh, and if you look at that first retrieval, thing, 1770. Yeah, mm, you know <laughs> that was. What was on the mind right. at the time? This was information that was widely, you know, available. The the person who developed this lock even put out a challenge saying, "Come pick this lock. Like you can't do it. Oh, wow. I'll give you." It, it amounts to a substantial amount of money in today's uh, economy. I think it's like twenty grand, fifty grand, something like that. Like, yeah, not a small amount of change. So. This would have been known to well-educated policymakers who are drafting some important legal documents about how privacy should be enshrined in a new country. Mm. Like, you think? And, you know, <laughs> they were probably using these laws. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he complained that end-to-end encryption developers were effectively exempting themselves from complying with court orders, which is in- interesting because... Already, CALEA, which is the Computer Assistance for Law Enforcement Act, explicitly does not require carriers to de- decrypt encryption where users are the sole key holders. It actually spells that out already. Yeah. 
so it's a bit of a pot calling the kettle black in you know oh you're trying to avoid going to the courts to do this yeah like, you know they've been establishing systems so that they can avoid going to the courts and going and getting warrants yeah so with that alex wubbles thank you and uh rod rosenstein redacted <laughs> yeah So as Privacy Patriots gets back on the road here, I'm, I'm glad that t- we can have our first guest out of the gate again, Tracy Rosenberg from Media Alliance and Oakland Privacy. And we're glad to speak to her because she did some seminal work out in the Bay Area earlier this year uh, in an attempt to hold law enforcement accountable for their use of surveillance technology. So mm-hmm. that really came to a head in the form of uh, an attempted state bill in California. It was SB 21. Now, did that bill have a name? Uh, no, it really literally was called um, SB 21. It had some fairly long name uh, that basically focused on sort of um, community control of surveillance. But basically, the drift was surveillance transparency to mm-hmm. the public and legislative oversight. Mm-hmm. So... If we could do a little schoolhouse rock California style here, just briefly yeah. to kind of frame things up for our listeners, you know, uh, the process of, of drafting bills in different states varies, you know, and uh, mm-hmm. the, the state governments vary. So starting off, I guess, could you tell us a little bit of the process of how a bill becomes a law in California uh, and even how what bodies make up the, the government in California? Oh, definitely. And I'll tell you a little bit about sort of the startup story for SB 21, Mm. which is that it sort of came out of some model legislation that was developed in the Bay Area and um, by a number of groups. Restore the Fourth played a role, Open Privacy played a role, and the ACLU of Northern California played a role. The reason that we did that is that we were coming off a monumental struggle against the Domain Awareness Center, or the DAC, which was mm-hmm. sort of a pilot citywide surveillance program funded by the Department of Homeland Security that they were mm. trying We've talked about that a bit on the show before. Dragnet of cameras and microphones connected. All the toys. Um, and fed into, <laughs> yeah, and fed into the Fusion Center. And it was really like a block-by-block citywide dragnet. And once we sort of got an idea that this was actually happening, and they were sort of forcing it through on the consent calendar. So this was going on for the better part of a year before somebody kind of said, what the heck? (laughs) And we started going to meetings and asking questions. And as it came to light, the extent of the project, I think people were genuinely shocked, Mm. although we probably shouldn't have been because of Oakland's large African-American population and the activist tendencies in the city and the economic stresses. Mm. It's often kind of a canary in the coal mine for where surveillance starts um, and sort of where it hits first and most intensely. But coming out of that experience, and we did stop it as a city, we sort of started thinking about, well, what do you do proactively to keep this from happening over and over again? Because it's hard to mount that kind of resistance over and over again. Mm. And we figured that, you know, this stuff is kind of moving. And they would try again, if not in Oakland, then somewhere else. So this sort of model legislation was designed not to prevent all surveillance technology from being used, to provide public transparency and the opportunity for the community to say no when it's too much. Mm. So we started trying to implement that locally in various cities and counties in in the Bay Area and largely have. It is law in Santa Clara County 
and it's on the table in the cities of Oakland and Berkeley and, and Richmond and Palo Alto and a couple of others. And back at the beginning of uh, 2017, a state senator, Jerry Hill, in San Mateo, came up with the idea that maybe it should go to the whole state, and he basically put it out there, mm. much to our shock and, and surprise, because our feeling was, as, as activists, that we needed to kind of put this into place in a couple more cities, some in Northern California, some in Southern California, before we would sort of have a convincing statewide case. Mm -hmm. But he thought it was such a wonderful idea. Uh, he's, you know, he's a big transparency advocate that yeah. he kind of wanted to just go with it. So, so much you, to our shock, there it was on the legislative agenda. So you were just trying um, to make a pass, and he uh, took the ball and ran all the way down the field with it. Yeah, he kind of jumped the barn. <laughs> what yeah. happened? We were sort of like, oh, okay. Yeah. How often campaign. Do you we see that, that kind coming? of initiative <laughs> from a politician? Yeah. So in terms of, uh, well, it, it just goes to show you that there is an understanding that there's a problem here. Mm. There's a lot of arguments about what the best solution is, and the bill itself didn't succeed on the statewide level, and, and I'm sure that we'll talk about that, but people get that there's a problem. Mm. So in terms of California state government, I guess what I should say is that there's two houses, the Senate and the Assembly, very much like the House and the Senate in Washington. Uh, the Senate is smaller. The Assembly is bigger. Um, our bill started out on the Senate side and then moved to the Assembly. And basically the process is that you go through a bunch of committees in the first house, then it passes that house, then it goes to the second house, then it goes through a bunch of committees in the second house. And then if it passes that house, then it goes to the governor who has the opportunity to veto it or to sign it. Sounds pretty similar to how things work here in New York State. Yeah, I think so. So if I can roll back, I, kind of to review this progression, uh, things were sparked by the attempt to deploy this DAC in Oakland, and there was an initial response on a municipal level. Can you review a little bit of, of, of what that response was and how it was successful? Oh, sure. Yeah. The DAC struggle was really a two-year process. The project sort of started to leak into public awareness around 2012 or the end of 2012, largely helped by some internal folks in the city of Oakland who sort of started seeing the paper and going, what the heck is this? And sort of getting out some general information that there was something going on with Homeland Security that was pretty big. In the spring of 2013, um, a group of folks who were loosely connected with Occupy Oakland, the mm -hmm. mobilization, um, sort of got a hold of this information and really felt like it was necessary for the people of Oakland to respond. So they started organizing and going to city council meetings and talking about this and talking about the fact that something this big really shouldn't be sneaking through on the consent calendar, that mm. that was crazy, that we needed to have a broad citywide discussion on this. Mm. And eventually more people started coming and saying the same things and the press started to cover it a bit. We were helped a great deal by the alternative quickly in town. The East Bay Express did some amazing coverage of it and basically lifted up the issue. And by the spring of 2014, uh, we were regularly having 50 to 100 people show up at the council every time the item came up. And we were literally having three and four hour public comment sessions. Mm. How did that conclude in terms of the consequence on the DAC and Oakland? What we got was basically a series of steps, what you would call sort of step-downs. And I think one of, of the things that it's important for people to recognize when they do this kind of work is, you know, overwhelming victory is great, but a lot of the time what happens is that you slow things down, and then as time goes by, 
it steps back and steps back and steps back, and eventually uh, they aren't able to do what it is that they were trying to do. And that's very much what the story of the DAC is. So around March of 2014, there was a vote to roll the scope of the project back from citywide to just the Port of Oakland, which was a reduction of, you know, 80%. And then a little bit after that, there was a pullback on the funding. And then a little bit after that, there was an agreement that there needed to be a privacy policy and an ad hoc committee needed to be put together to make a privacy policy that would affect the operations of the DAC. And that happened. That is now a permanent city commission called the Privacy Advisory um, So they basically provide commission. ongoing oversight? Yes, yes. But it, but it came into being as an ad hoc to sort of control the operations of the DAC. Okay. And they wrote a very restrictive use policy. And then the thing shrunk some more. And then it basically ceased to exist. Hmm. So over the course of about a six-month period of time, it basically was stopped. And, and we got to the end, and there was no DAC. So from there, if I'm following, um, there, there was some mind of uh, trying to be even more preemptive from there and and led to something at the county level in Santa Clara? Yeah, we decided to put together some model legislation that would essentially put up a framework so that when any local government, a city or a county, was going forward with a significant surveillance technology purchase or deployment, that there would have to be a transparent announcement to the public, there would have to be an opportunity for community input, there would have to be a a use policy, you know, what are the allowed uses for this equipment or technology, and more importantly, what are, wh- what can't we do with it? What's not allowed? What's not permitted? Mm-hmm. Um, who gets to use it? In what way? For what purpose? And that we would get annual reports about what actually happened to see if what happened comported w- with the policy and the intention, or if a bunch of funny stuff went down. That's essentially what the framework was, and the idea is that we can get this framework into place, then we won't be gobsmacked by these things coming at us and having to yeah, react. Not Instead, doing we doing whack-a-mole of, every time. Exactly, and then we can sort of proactively respond as things come up as a community, mm-hmm. and you know, be able to make some decisions through our elected representatives about how they watch us and how they don't. What kind of um, response did you get from? either government officials or law enforcement officials uh, at the to the attempt of trying to be proactive and putting in place uh, protections before you know you need them. Because uh, in my experience uh, out here, I, I personally had some uh, kind of pushback at the idea of why are you worrying about what, what hasn't happened yet? Oh, yeah. There's a whole bunch of pushback. It's interesting because as you do this, you will find that you get a lot of lip service in in concept. People understand that there's an enormous amount of surveillance technology. The technology is moving at a rapid pace, that all of these things are coming faster and faster and faster, and that they're sort of outstripping the rules and regulations to control them. And that communities are are nervous. Policing has, has a history that certainly has some pretty negative aspects and the idea of um, increased gadgets and gizmos makes a Mm -hmm. lot of people nervous and uncomfortable for reasons that are completely understandable that this technology can be and often is misused. I mean, you know, we have stories of NSA agents stalking their ex-girlfriends. We have stories of license plate readers being deployed in front of mosques for no reason. I mean, Mm -hmm. there's all kinds of things that can be done. 
black identity extremists, whatever that is, it's a long list. So we get a lot of lip service to, yes, there's a problem. Yes, we should do something. And when you get to the concrete specifics of, okay, here's what we can do, then you get a lot of pushback that basically focuses on it's a paperwork burden. We don't have time for all this crap. When there's a crime, we have to be able to respond instantaneously with no Mm -hmm. limitations. And how can you not trust the judgment of law enforcement? Mm -hmm. And that's where you have to say, well, sorry, but we don't necessarily trust the judgment of law enforcement. And we need a framework in place to make sure that those judgments are correct. Because the damage to the targets can be extreme. And you can't take it back once it happens. (laughs) So... Our basic strategy as a group and what we've done in Northern California really involves a significant amount of persistence, which is that we stay at them for long periods of time. And our ramp-up time, as it were, when we initially approach a local government and when we actually start to see an ordinance potentially on the table has been between one and two years. Mm -hmm. It's a long time. And it's one and two years of almost constant interface and impact. Now, after the point that you would say you accomplished what was needed in Oakland regarding the DAC and the formation of uh, that review board, how much added effort and how much more time did it take to uh, bring forth protective measures at the county level in Santa Clara? Well, from the time that we first started talking to Santa Clara to the time that we passed it was a year and a half. Mm. And that involved literally going down there every month. Um, and, you know, a significant amount of, you know, online and telephone contact in, in between. And we had a champion. We had someone on the Santa Clara Board of Supervisors who, who was really an, an advocate and did a lot of work for That's us. That's important. Yeah, he really wanted this to go through, and that helps. You know, it certainly helps to have a champion. But that said, I mean, personally, I attended committee meetings of that Board of Supervisors every single month for close to a year. And... Mm-hmm. The problem is that that's an awful lot to demand of citizen activists. Yes. So the question of whether we can really control surveillance technology without such an enormous sacrifice on the part of local activists of their time and energy is a challenge that we have. But I haven't yet come up with a better way to do it. And is it my understanding that one of the ways uh, you were kind of able to keep the heat on was that you had strong coalitions of, of different organizations. And would I imagine that amounted to when someone was, yeah. you know, maybe taking a breath, uh, somebody else was uh, stepping into the ring? Yeah, yeah. Because of the historical accident of, of, of the DAC, which I think was, was a large organic response that largely came out of the community because of Oakland's long history of policing abuse and activism that has just mm-hmm. been there forever. I mean, this is the birthplace of the Black Panthers, for God's sakes. So people were ready to respond, and they saw it, I think, on a historical trajectory, that this was nothing new, even though it was, you know, advanced technology. But Just a 21st century flavor of it. Yeah, 21st century COINTELPRO, basically, is kind Mm. of how people saw it. So we had a large coalition because that project was so extensive and because it frightened people so much. And what we basically did is is just kind of try to radiate that outwards kind of throughout the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had strong connections with a number of groups that felt targeted. Um, some Muslim and Middle Eastern groups have been tremendous allies because they, they know that stuff is kind of coming for them. Yeah. They can see that. Um, and we've also um, 
forged some pretty strong connections with immigration groups because of their concerns about ICE and their concerns sure. about vetting. And now that the Trump administration is pointing so much at tracking down and profiling immigrants, they very much see themselves as, you know, the, the canaries in the coal mine. So those sorts of connections have been really helpful. And yeah, the more you can bring on a broader coalition, the easier it is because the sort of impact on, on a handful of people becomes a little bit less intense. But mm. that said, you know, it's, it's very difficult to bird dog local government consistently for a long period of time. But the alternative mm. is that we let them do whatever they want to. Yeah. Now, in terms of the Santa Clara County bill or ordinance, I'm not sure what it yeah. would be called out there. Um, <laughs> so, so does it only apply to say that because it's county level, does it apply only to the sheriff's department, or does it cascade down to um, local police departments? Yeah, as well? unfortunately, if you pass it on the county level, it only applies to the jurisdictions that are under the county's direct mm. control. So there are a okay. number of cities inside the county that have their own systems, and. Working locally makes a, makes a lot of sense because the accountability is much more direct. When people mm. show up at city council meetings or at a board of supervisors meetings, they are real constituents that are apps that are actually voting in a way that doesn't really translate on the statewide level mm. or the national level, unless you have a humongous amount of people. But, you know, 20 or 30 people at a city council meeting can make a difference. Mm. Um, but the bad part of it is that there's an awful lot of local municipalities in a state like California. It's huge. So the going mm. city to city is exhausting and it's mm. a huge project. And we have been working for years and there are so many cities left that it's, a, you know, that it's sobering, which is probably why the statewide effort came forward, because I think that um, the state center was impressed by what we were doing, but he was kind of doing the math and thinking, we have to do the state, all the municipalities and all the counties at once. Mm. So if I'm keeping a scorecard at this point with all that's been accomplished by you and your, your cohorts, who is under decent oversight at this point? Am I seeing uh, the Santa Clara Sheriff's Department and uh, the Oakland City Oakland. Police Department? Oakland Municipal is supervised mm. by a privacy commission, and we'll have an ordinance shortly. It'll be in front of the city council within weeks. Mm -hmm. uh, the city of Berkeley, which is which is a neighboring city, Santa Clara Sheriff's Department. Uh, we have ordinances about halfway through in uh, Palo Alto and the city of Davis. We're in early conversations with San Francisco and uh, Richmond, which is a smaller city in the Bay Area. And we would probably be a little further along with a couple of other cities. We've had some preliminary conversations in San Jose, but the SB21 campaign, which we will talk about, took a great deal of our energy for much of this mm -hmm. year and sort of pulled a bit on, on the local work because you can't do everything at the same time. <laughs> mm -hmm. So the attempt to try to replicate the oversight that you got implemented in Santa Clara statewide, so it sounded like you came very close to the finish line, if I recall. We were two votes from the governor's desk, um, and we had cleared, um, it was a total of five committees and, and, and one house. We cleared the California State Senate, three committees on the Senate side, and, and the full Senate, two committees on the assembly side, and we were stopped at assembly appropriations, which is the last assembly committee before the, uh, before the full 
assembly would have voted. So of a total mm-hmm. of, I believe it was one, two, three, four, of a total of eight votes that we needed to the governor's desk, we got seven. Mm-hmm. But we didn't get the last. Now, can you characterize it all for us, the, the opposition to the bill? Sure. Um, the bill sort of started out a little bit weaker than we as advocates would have liked, and I think that was a judgment by the sponsor, the state senator, who was a big transparency advocate but was a little bit concerned about the legislative oversight part, basically feeling that law enforcement would go crazy and basically say city councils and boards of supervisors don't get to tell us what to do, which is the usual police response, right? <laughs> We're the mm-hmm. experts at, at fighting crime, and they don't get to tell us what to do and, and, and what not to do. So what he put out was sort of uh, transparency only. In other words, all the stuff has to be written down and all of it has to be publicly posted and there has to be a public comment period. But once they do that, they've been transparent, so that's it. And we sort mm-hmm. of said, well, what if the community doesn't like <laughs> what's posted? Then what? Yeah. And he didn't really have an answer for that. And we sort of said, well, then this bill doesn't really add up to a whole lot. I mean, transparency's nice. But what we actually want here is the ability to say no when the right answer is no, when that's what the local community wants. I'm fully cognizant that communities are different and that, you know, Orange County may want different, may be accepting of things going on in their community that Oakland would not be. And that's okay. It's not my job to tell people what they should accept and what they shouldn't accept. Mm -hmm. But we're trying to create a framework where if they want to say no, they can say no. Or they Mm -hmm. can at least pressure their elected representatives to say no on their behalf. So the senator had some concerns. Basically, the concerns were, well, if I do that, then it's not going to pass. And our concerns were, well, we don't want it to pass unless it actually does what it needs to do. And so (laughs) we went through some dialogue about that. And in the end, we approached some other senators on the uh, Senate Judiciary and Public Safety Committees, which were taking a look at it. And they largely saw it our way and decided that the bill should be stronger. So that's what happened. That's Um, interesting. Yeah. Well, it was basically the kind of, you know, then what question. Mm-hmm. There was no good answer for it. You know, well, what if law enforcement suggests something completely crazy? Then what? <laughs> and there had to be an answer to that question. So mm-hmm. the bill was amended at the Senate ju- ju- judiciary level, which we were very excited about, um, into, we thought, a pretty good bill. It went to Senate appropriations. It got through it. It passed the full Senate narrowly, but it passed. It went to the assembly, got through assembly public safety, got through assembly um, privacy and consumer protection. Mm. And then it got to assembly appropriations, which is very close to, to the governor's office. And two things sort of happened. One is that we had a little bit of skepticism from some of the Southern California assembly members. And the reason for that, which is why we had not gone to Sacramento of our own accord, was that they had never seen this policy in effect anywhere on their side of the state. Mm-hmm. You know, we had never gotten further south than Santa Clara. So for the, you know, for the large contingent of assembly reps from um, Orange County and Los Angeles and San Diego and the desert, uh, it was a little hypothetical. And there was a tendency to think, well, this is this is a Northern California thing. So that was one problem. And then yeah. the other, you know, and then the other scenario was the governor. We had some communication with the governor's office and they seemed to be somewhat open. But we do understand that there's a relationship with law enforcement there. Um, and we think that in the end, that probably um, tipped the balance. And so when we got to appropriations, although we thought that we would get through, the bill was held. Uh, um, so 
Could you give a little, just to give things a, a little more context, you know, you, you mentioned um, that, you know, a, a lot of the folks, I'm, I'm guessing from like the Los Angeles area, were, car- were the ones characterizing it as a, a Northern California bill. Um, you know, can we talk a yeah. bit about the diversity of political culture in California and what that implies to say this is a, a Northern California bill? Sure. I mean, California is a really large state, and people have to realize that it's like, you know, between the sort of the two large metropolitan areas, the Bay Area in the north and the sort of L.A. San Diego in in the south, you've got really like 450 miles or 500 miles. So Mm -hmm. it's the context of essentially if you're in New York, it's like North Carolina. (laughs) You know, it's, it's a long ways away, and there's a tendency to feel that the cultures are kind of somewhat different. And that what's right up there might not be right down here. Um, so I, I think that the lack of a Southern California test case was a real problem. I think that, that it made people feel a little bit sort of like the carpetbagger thing. Oh, well, it I might see. be right for them up there, but who are they to tell us what to do and that kind of thing. Gotcha. So that was a part of it. And I, I, I think there was also a sense there wasn't really a call for this from people in Southern California. And so while what- I'm not sure that that's entirely true... I do think that awareness of the model was not, ha- had not really gotten into Southern California. So basically, it's not like activist groups in Southern California had been calling out for this. Yeah. So it now, sort of you, felt like it was coming from, from, from over there. And, you know, you, locally based politicians tend to be resistant to that kind of thing. They want to hear it from their own constituents. And that was a bit of, of a stretch for us and why we didn't really feel that we were ready for a statewide campaign quite yet. Now, you, I gather you're a, a kind of a bicoastal person um do you do you feel that the bay area kind of has a unique awareness or concern collectively on the issue of privacy mm-hmm. that that is uh unique and compared to the rest of the country or even the rest of the state yeah. of california um i do think that the issue resonates all over the country and i certainly there have been various kinds of activity there's a lot of activity in chicago there's been a lot of activity um there's been some activity in the Northeast. Uh, there's mm. been some, a- the state of Illinois has passed a couple of, of bills, although they haven't been overarching. They've been specific to um, certain kinds of technology. So there's certainly a zeitgeist out there that, that people are concerned. And if you do polls, you will see that people are very worried about their mm. personal information and where it's going to and what the government is kind of up to. All of that is real. I mean, you know, in North Dakota and Standing Rock, people understand that, you know, protesters were targeted. Um, But that said, I think that the idea that um, regulation is the answer to it is an idea that probably has a lot more um, viability in the Bay Area than it has had in other parts of the country to date, although that is starting to change. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. Part of it is that we are so close to Silicon Valley, which is a huge engine for tech innovation. So we see them here. And I think that we have a real sense of how quickly this is moving and how many more gadgets we're going to be facing in a short period of time. And sort of a sense that uh, while we have some good friends in the tech industry and plenty of people that see the implications, the industry as a whole can be a little... Um, apolitical or perhaps a little bit more interested in the capabilities of the technology being broad and the implications of those capabilities, maybe a little bit less cognizant of it. In mm. other words, they want to be able to do neat things technologically. <laughs> they don't yeah. always think through what the consequences are for the real people on the other side. <laughs> so, yeah. 
And I think that we're really familiar with that in all sorts of aspects in the Bay Area because amazing things have been invented in Silicon Valley, and some of them are really enormously disruptive to the society, and we could see it <laughs> right in front of us. <laughs> um, so that's a part of it. So you- and, um, you know, and regulation as an idea is something that sometimes breaks down on partisan lines, although we don't think that it should be, and there's a lot of libertarian support when it comes mm. to, to government spying and law enforcement spying which is important. But there's also that sort of anti-regulation fervor, yeah. which, yeah, I mean, which exists, you know. <laughs> I mean, on the whole, especially nationally, we've seen that you have both Democrats and Republicans uh, on both sides of the issue. Uh, yes. We've seen uh, in Washington a number of, of bad pieces of legislation co-sponsored yes. by, in a bipartisan fashion, and then um, others that seek to protect privacy that have been co-sponsored in a bipartisan fashion. Absolutely. But, uh, and some and some very conservative Republicans who I otherwise would not be inclined to agree with on too many issues, because I'm a Bay Area lefty, if you can't yeah. tell. But, um, <laughs> but that said, some, um, you know, hard Republican legislators have said some amazing things on the subject of privacy and government spying that are absolutely right. And some, you know, traditionally liberal Democratic representatives have been absolutely horrible on the issue. Yeah. So do you, do you think that, um, you know, I, I can't make a comparison off the top of my head line by line, but do you have any familiarity with the, the Post Act, which has popped up in New York City, which to me sounds very similar, mm-hmm. if not inspired by SB 21 and, and all that preceded? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I actually watched at some point um, on, on my computer a couple of Post Act hearings. And it is absolutely inspired by the same piece of model legislation. I think there are a couple of technical differences because, you know, every city government is different. And there's Mm. certain things that can be done based on New York government that can't be done in other cities, kind of vice versa. So you always have to sort of schmiggle it a bit based on the particular municipality that you're in. But that's what they've done for the Post Act. And I think it's breaking down on the predictable lines. I mean, NYPD is used to acting with a great deal of impunity, and they feel pretty strongly that nobody's going to tell them what to do. And the city council, to a significant extent, seems to feel that there should be some oversight, but how much and where the lines are drawn is tricky. And the mayor, I believe de Blasio, has not been entirely helpful. Mm. And, you know, and in New York, they get terrorist attacks occasionally. And when that happens, it tends to sort of shut down the conversation. Yeah. And it shuts down the conversation in a non-constructive way, because the truth is whether or not there are attacks by disturbed people, and there are all over this country, we still have a surveillance problem, and we still have to address what we're going to do about it. We can't just sort of shut down and throw up our hands. Yeah. 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 But it's hard because, you know, they create emotional responses in in people because people are hurt and people die and people suffer. And so that tends to set back the conversation for some period of time. And politicians are good at taking advantage of dramatic events to push their particular agenda. Let no tragedy go to waste. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. So. I think the last time we communicated prior to this interview was uh, right on the heels of of SB 21 falling through. And you kind of uh, made a statement to me uh, in terms of a silver lining saying, you know, oh, well, uh, local is better anyway. And, you know, (laughs) up till now, we've been 
talking about how you know each municipality has a unique uh, unique case to deal with. But yeah. do you want to elaborate on that? You know, do you think do you subscribe to the idea of of you know act locally or or to quote <laughs> you know the old adage of all politics is local? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, to be honest, partially I was comforting myself because it was a big blow. We worked very hard for nine months. For sure. And you don't want it to end that way. Um, that said, it's very common that things that go to Sacramento go once, twice, three times before they stick. So it's not an unusual mm-hmm. experience, and it doesn't mean that we're not going to get there next time. But I think that philosophically, I am inclined to agree that local oversight is really, in the end, what, what will work. Because mm-hmm. the truth is that when we have civic engagement on the local level, that is really what prevents impunity. Because yeah. frankly, if nobody's paying attention, then people will do whatever they want to do. What stops them from doing what's most convenient for them is public oversight and attention. However, as I told you, logistically, there are practical concerns because people are busy, people are financially stressed, people have family responsibilities, and there's a lot of municipalities and there's a lot of equipment and technology out there. And this is technical stuff. It takes a while to sort of learn what it is and and how it works to be able to talk about it effectively. Mm -hmm. And when you look at all the cities and all the equipment, it is tempting to kind of think, well, there's going to have to be some kind of bigger solution. There's going to have to be some kind of statewide or national solution eventually. Um, So I think that's true. Um, But in sort of in my perfect world, I think that we are in the end reliant on civic engagement because, you know, this is our world and these are our Our communities. communities, And if we don't pay attention to what's going on in them, then I'm not sure there's any sort of overarching thing that can replace that. What I would say to people is that if they're concerned about this problem, they should know that there's model legislation out there that can come to any city, any town, however small, however big. We do have um, at at Oakland Privacy, you know, templates for letters and advice and lobbying instructions. And it's certainly something that a small group of dedicated people, a la Margaret Mead, can do. And we know that for Mm. a fact, because a handful of us stopped that DAC. (laughs) So it can be done. So I don't So I would definitely put out to people that, you know, locally we can act and we can make things better right in front of our face. And when you're dealing with something like government surveillance that is so scary, I think Mm. it's really healthy and empowering to feel like we can do something in our house, in our home, in our town. Sure. And I think there's enormous power in doing that, and we should understand that. And we have seen from the strength of of the pushback that there is enormous power in doing it and that it does start to change things. Because the mm. national conversation that we're having about government surveillance and spying uh, in 2017 is very different from the conversation in like 2012 or 2013. Sure. It's a much bigger and broader conversation. So we are changing things. Whether we're changing things fast enough, I don't know. Can my good moods? I, I think so. In my bad moods, I worry that we're not. The truth is probably somewhere in between. But I do want people to know that they can act, that there are tools and assistance out there. We're, we're at oaklandprivacy.org, and you can email us, and we'll share with you all of the experiences that we've had and advice about how you can proceed. And I also sort of encourage people to do a little bit of reading, of reading, get familiar with some of this equipment. There's a lot of lingo about stingrays and drones and slurs and license plates readers and to 
to the extent that you start to become comfortable with what all of these tools are and how mm. they're used, you'll feel more confident about walking over to your local city hall and saying, hey, guys, what's going on here? All right. Well, Tracy Rosenberg of Media Alliance and Oakland Privacy, uh, thanks so much for all your hard work. We applaud you and you're an inspiration to uh, you know, other communities. And hopefully we will start to see this trickling out to uh, the rest of the country. I think so. Yeah. So I appreciate you spending the time with us. Thanks. Well, thank you, Jonathan, for having me. It was a pleasure. All right, so that about wraps things up. We hope you enjoyed Episode 8 of Privacy Patriots, the official podcast of Restore the Fourth. Thanks for listening, and we hope to have you join us for the next episode. Head over to www.privacypatriots.org, where you can get further connected with us on Reddit, Twitter, and Facebook. So keep watching The Watchers, and stay tuned as we give you the information you need to keep your information your own.